Ladies and gentlemen, this is This is The Real Mission Impossible Show With your host, Lucien Jay Are you ready? We search the globe for the most amazing people who have overcome incredible obstacles Demonstrated amazing resilience, done the impossible I said, are you ready? Join, Join the real coach and Jay on the Real Mission Impossible show. Meeting legends from Dubai, South Africa, Nairobi, New York, London, wherever they are to make it possible for the Real Impossible with Coach MJ. The Real Mission Impossible show starts in... Let's count down together! 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Boom! Hi, welcome back. This is Coach MJ on Mission Impossible. Today we have... A guest, Diane Miller, RN. She's a cancer survivor, amongst other things and other challenges in her life. And I've been very honored to bring her in today into our studio. Diana, good evening. How are you? Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, it. I've seen a lot of things that you're doing. You seem very active, and even on social media. I noticed that you still are an RN practice, but I understand you do that as a volunteer. I keep up my RN license. I've had it for over 30 years. I've been in management most of my nursing career. I got out of it and decided to start a business. But with COVID, I've picked up some hours. I'm doing a little bit of uh, supervision of healthcare workers during the COVID. All right. And I also see that you're very intimately involved or intricately rather involved with uh, some football players in the NFL. What's that all about? In 2000, I had a switch of careers and I was recruited by a large brokerage firm to be a financial advisor. At the time, I had two kids, just didn't want to travel. I was traveling a lot with my healthcare career. So Merrill Lynch recruited me, brought me on. I got bored pretty quick, went through my training and decided to focus on athletes as my niche and spend about two years interviewing players and coaches and owners about what to do, what not to do. And I finally got my first client. At the time, there were 60,000 financial advisors, 300 were approved by the NFL. I was one of the 300 and I was the first female. So awesome. I went to teams and I taught about finance, what to wow. do. I did that for about 10, 12 years while I was raising my kids. Okay. So were you able then to help some of the NFL players who might not have known how to manage their money before yeah. and you were able to kind of walk them through the stages uh, with a trusting hand? I would go to the teams. At the time, the union had two required classes per, per year. The players had to sit through about finance. So I was the person they would bring in to talk to them. And then on the side, a lot of them became my clients. So I managed their money and I talked um, to the teams as a whole. If I were just ask you a general question, if you remember a particular player on a particular team that made the most money out of taking advice from you, does anybody come to mind? I had everything, I had people from practice squad all the way to the MVPs. And the goal with working with players wasn't so much who makes the most, it's who lives below their means and they can survive after football. Because 85% of them were bankrupt after playing. So my goal was to get them to get used to that, that lifestyle that's not like a football player, but somewhere in between so that when they're done, they don't have the debt, they don't have the house they have to pay for that they can't afford you know, that type of thing. So it was more about holding onto their money and diversifying and being safe. I treated them more like somebody who was 80 than somebody who was 25 because their income that they were making was going to go away real soon. Right. And doesn't, doesn't the NFL have a fund for that though, where they can they have a retirement fund? They have, they have a pension. There's, there's a fund, but there's so many rules about how you get that, how you tap into it. And at the time, 90% of the players didn't even play for three years. 
And so they do have a really nice 401k, but you got to put in, that's a lot of what I did. I told them to put money into the 401k, but if you're only playing for a few years, you can only put so much in. Right. Okay. And you figure if they're 25, when they're done or 28, they got a long time, you know, to survive without that income. Right. I suppose it was uh, rewarding nonetheless, if you did it for over a decade of your life. It was so much fun. I got to go to Super Bowl. I was the guest of honor at certain induction ceremonies. I mean, it was, it was a great, and now I stay in contact with a lot of them. A lot of them are my friends. They're going to help me with my book and my next business. And um, it was very rewarding in a lot of ways. It really was. It was fun too. Well, that's awesome. And I guess, you know, you deserve to have some great experiences because what you just described, as soon as you said, I got to go to a lot of Super Bowls, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, me and Diane, we kind of know each other. We can rub shoulders at a, at a Super Bowl with some of the boys. Yes, but it wasn't, life has not always been rosy for you. We know that you're a cancer survivor. It's not a surprise to our audience because we've, we've kind of built this into the show tonight. This is our, really our theme. But can you give us a little bit of background? Like what were you doing at the time? Where were you in life? What was going on in your life? And then how you got the news? So the reason I was able to even work within the, with the NFL players was because I wasn't a sales lady and I wasn't just selling them investments. One of the things that motivated me to work with that population was when I was a nurse, I was a psychiatric nurse for a long time and I was also a trauma nurse. So I had athletes who were told they'd never play again or even walk again. I had one patient who sold a Super Bowl ring so I saw a lot of really tough stories and my motivation came from a lot of my pre-sports days to my nursing days. And the reason I was a psych nurse and a, and a trauma nurse uh, is because even before that, my mother had mental illness. I grew up without parents, basically. So I knew a lot about mental illness and that led me to psych, which led to a lot of other things. I was a disaster nurse, disaster Red Cross. I did a lot of stuff. So I was going along in life. I was nursing. I was in management very quickly. I was supervising a hospital when I was about 28. I was a manager at 29 or 30. So I was in leadership positions, did that. Then, of course, I took a break from that and went to the, um, my NFL work, my financial advisor work. And then I couldn't travel anymore because it was a lot of traveling because I would be in Baltimore one weekend, and then I'd be in at the Jets, and then I'd be in San Diego, and I was everywhere, and I had kids, and I'm a single mom, so I was raising two kids. So I had to stop traveling, and then I got recruited by this hospital system that asked if I could open a hospital. So I opened, I spent two and a half years opening a hospital in Milwaukee, which was a behavioral health addictions kind of a hospital, very needed, and in two and a half years, I didn't have a day off. I basically was director of hospital development. I worked hard. I raised my kids and we opened a 56 bed hospital and it was great. We got it accredited. It was making money even. And then I got tired and I went to Alaska and took some time off and decided that I just needed to scale it back a little bit and have more balance. And that's about the same time that I went to have an exam and found out that I had breast cancer. So I had had pre-cancer cells from 2012 until 2018 and 18 it was I was actually at my five year meet my five year I had every six month exams and I was at the five year where they said okay you're good and it was that fifth year exam where they said there's something else going on there my mom was gone by my age pretty much 
breast cancer on both sides of my family, very young and a single mom. So I said to my doctor, dying is not an option. I worked too hard. I was um, exhausted and it was kind of my time because my kids were going to go off to college pretty soon. And I just felt like I had this next chapter. So I literally said, dying is not an option. And it was funny because when she rolled me into the operating room, I heard her say to all the, all the medical team in, in the room, this is Diane. And she wants you all to know that dying is not an option. They kind of laughed. And she also knew my history. She knew I had been through a lot in my life. And she knew that my attitude is, you know, when you have a challenging situation, it's danger or opportunity. You know, are you going to go backwards? Are you going to not be okay? Or are you going to take this opportunity and grow and get better? And she knew my history and what I'd been through. So she knew that I wasn't going to be okay coming out of double mastectomy, which is traumatic for any woman. And I wasn't going to do well with being just a survivor. And there's nothing wrong with being a survivor, but I, I needed more than that. So when I came out of surgery, she walked in and she told me, that the surgery went well and it didn't look like it spread anywhere and she thought it was good, but they're waiting for more tests. And then she said, oh, and by the way, you're gonna be a triathlete. Now she knew I had always wanted to be in sports personally, but I didn't have the confidence when I was younger, but I'm very active. So I'm sitting there in the hospital and she says, you're gonna be the triathlete. She introduced me to a group that is cancer survivors, most of them years past their diagnosis, but some not. And this was February of 18. And April, I was in an informational session and I started training. And by July, I did my first triathlon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. come back with this timeline. You got diagnosed, you went in for surgery. You had a double mastectomy. Did I understand that correctly? Yep. yep. During your re recovery time in the hospital, the doctor said, oh, by the way, you're gonna be a triathlete. We yep. never had any contact with this at all. Yep. Somebody came over and talked to you about it. And from that day, what, how long did it take you to, to go to a triathlon? So that was February. And this hospital system that did my surgery, they had this program called Team Phoenix. I guess I can say that. And they had an informational session two months after I had my surgery. So I still had like drains and bandages and all that. And I went to the informational session and they said, you're going to have a 16 week. Now I'll come back to the Vince Lombardi, Lombardi story because it's something kind of cool. But they said, you got, you have 16 weeks. We're going to hook you up with a trainer, your medical team, whatever you need to get you from this to doing the swim in a lake with ugly fish to the bike, to the run, and everyone's going to complete it. And I think I was the most recent, obviously, in terms of diagnosis and certainly surgery. So from April, May, June into July, I worked out hard four times a week. My doctor told me later she did that because she knew I needed to keep going. Like it was, and I know that about me. I didn't want to like sit down and even think about it too much. I just didn't want to get into that hole. You that momentum, right? So the Vince Lombardi thing, when I was a little girl and my mom, I, like I say, I had no parents. Mom was in an institution and dad was gone. My uncle gave me something. It was a, like a poster and it had a picture of Vince Lombardi. It's a long time ago. And it had his saying about, you know, it doesn't matter if you fall down. It matters if you get back up. And I kept that with me. I still have it. And that's kind of how I look at life. So when I'm in this informational session about 
the triathlon, they came in and I said, who's paying for all this? It's trainers. It's, they, really, they were willing to give me a bike, um, everything. The Vince Lombardi Foundation. Whoa. And I was like, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> whoa. Get, get back up. That's awesome. Is that cool? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So. Love it. So, so and, then, and then I did, um, I did another one. So that was 18. And then I did another one in 19. And then I was practicing for my third one. I was getting ready and I fell. I hit some, I don't know, what bridge or what. I fell. I went up in the air. I landed on my knee. I shattered my knee. And I literally was immobilized and healing from that. And my doctor just gave me the approval to get out of the house with my little walker and start walking. And then the pandemic hit. So I've been homebound for a while, pretty much. <laughs> okay. Okay. But here's the thing. Diane, you're a hero. You, you had this incredibly traumatic news. You bounced back. As Vince Lombardi says, you, you jump back up. Doesn't matter how hard you fall. It's how you get back up. You did that. In life's karmic metaphor, that was their foundation that brought you through the triathlon and got you through the race and got you through those hurdles. For those listeners who might not understand what it takes to, to train to do a triathlon, can you just take us through the, the mileage? It's considered, a, there's a, like a regular triathlon and there's a mini triathlon. So we biked, I don't know, do we bike like 17, 18 miles? We swam, oh gosh, I should know this. And then it's a 5K run. I can't remember exactly all the distances. Um, it, was, it was a three-hour event or how long? Yeah, yeah. It, it's like if you were really, really good, you did it in less than two hours. If you, We had one, one woman on our team who she had never been in water. She was afraid of swimming. She was a, a, she'd never been in a pool. And this is the lake. So like, she took her about four hours, but we all waited for her. We waited at the, at the finish line for her. It took her a while. So it wasn't even about like how fast you went now they had, it was part of a regular triathlon. There was a lot of people. And then there was our small team of people who had had some type of cancer. I know that when I looked at the results, I was just so excited to be alive and then to even finish. Um, Amen. But at the end, I looked at my rating and for women in my age group, I was like in the middle. So I wasn't, and these are women who had been doing this. So I was kind of in the middle. So I feel like if I give it some time and I get through this stupid knee thing, I should be able to get to the top of my age group. And then after the mini try, I'll do the, the, the longer tries. That's my goal. Right, right, right. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. So during COVID, of course, you've had some time to think and to do some writing. Yes. You say you're working on a book. Can you give us a little bit of a hint of which direction you're going to go? Is so, it based on, on your journey, on your resilience, on positive mental attitude, bouncing back? Yeah. I have multiple books in my head. People have been telling me my whole life I have books to write. So I finally have the time. Both my kids went off to college. I bought a tiny house. I got rid of everything. I went from a 2,400 square foot farmhouse with 10 acres to a tiny house in the mountains. So I, got, I just decluttered my whole life. I just decluttered everything. And then my kids are like doing great so I don't have to worry so much. So I have time now. And um, I have like... It, sort of passion projects, things that I feel like I have a lot of experience with that I could help people with. So one thing I would like to do is about resiliency, getting through how, 
how do you get from point A to point B when you're getting, having a hard time? How do you go from taking a tough situation and growing and being better and having purpose? So, because it's not something everybody knows how to do and it's just kind of come to me naturally over time. So now I have to figure out how do you explain that to people? The other thing I'd like to do is I have a, I started a company called First Down Forever and I have about a hundred former NFL player, clients, coaches, retired people who said they'd help me where I could interview them. And I really want to do a book on finances, but not about how to invest, but rather the basics, just the basics, you know, how not to lose your money. What does it mean to be wealthy? How do you set aside emergency cash? The basic things I used to teach the players. So it's going to be my book, my stories, my lessons, but I'm going to interview guys along the way. So that's been in process for a while. And then I have a bunch of other books I could do. Nice, nice. Good. I have a good one. Yeah. Good. So have you, have you thought about which project you're going to take on first? And you have to do think, it step by step, right? Yeah, I think I'm going to do the one about how to get through tough times just because of COVID. Yeah. And like I, was, I was really focused on, and, and I can include some finance in there because part of getting through this is sort of reevaluating your life and setting things up differently so that you're prepared the next time. And it was so clear to me when, you know, the pandemic was announced in February, March, and the markets tank so quickly that we are not, we're not doing it right. We're not keeping emergency money. We're not setting up for emergencies. We're not setting up for risk. So basic things, I could include that, but I think what people need right now is how do I get through the next three, six, nine, 12 months? And when we find our new normal, our new normal, how can my life be better because of this? I heard some economists talking uh, on, a, on a radio talk show. Whether it's true, I don't know, but it sounded to me like they were trying to suggest that over 90% of Americans were about a paycheck and a half away from being broke. Yep. It's why people are not doing okay right now. I heard someone in the grocery store the other day say, have you noticed people who are a little crazy or a lot crazier now? And you can just feel it. You feel the tension, you feel the anxiety there's a lot of anger out there right now. You know, this is a disaster. Disasters have stages. In the beginning, it's like a hero stage. Everyone comes together and they all want to help and everybody's, the community comes together. And then you kind of have this sort of disillusionment and then people get angry and upset and then they readjust and then they rebuild. Well, with a pandemic, especially because we're not all behaving and doing what we need to do, there's, well, there's going to be waves. And so there's a lot of anger out there right now. People are afraid. And I think a lot of it is just, how am I going to buy food? I mean, that's basic need. That's like number one basic need is, can I feed my kids and pay my rent? Yeah. And, you know, you studied psychology, psychiatry and psychology. Going back to Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we certainly have yeah. really lived that whole platform on the bottom. Security, cool. safety, food, shelter, all those things that are absolutely essential. Forget telling me a an Armani or another branded something right now. I need rice for my kids. Self-actualization. It's funny. I talk to people about Maslow. I'm, it's funny. You said that I always draw the little triangle and I go, we're all kind of right about here right now. A lot of people are here. So the self-actualization is later, but if we can do the right thing here and change our lives, maybe we can get there faster down the road. Maybe. Yeah. I think, you know, working up that triangle for those people who are familiar with it, he, he goes from the basics of survival and then goes up to, to love and self-esteem. And it's the love part that gets kind of lost when there's fear. 
when there's fear, it drives people back down the ladder, back down the pyramid. And so they're, therefore, they're on fight or flight. Everything comes from fear or love. Yeah. Everything. And if there's a dark cave and you're in a dark hole, you don't get out of it by pulling the dark out. You have to put the light in. That's the only way you can make that cave light is adding light. But fear and love, everything you're seeing in the media and, you know, with your neighbors and your friends and your family, they're either coming from fear or love. That, those, that's it. Everything. I like that you said that. It's interesting. Well, it's an obvious thing, an obvious situation that we're in, in a very, very juxtaposition world. We, uh, and, and here's the other thing. When you have a bad winter, you know that winter will be finished. When you have a really hot summer, you know that summer will be finished. Right. But this thing, and I, we're, uh, we're in the state of Florida, uh, which is where we record the show. And frankly, about five weeks ago, you could have heard all kinds of reports saying it's gone. We, we don't have any issue at all. And then it looks like the train just went north, turned right. around, came back down and parked. Well, and the problem is people think we don't have an issue anymore because they were, they were doing the right thing. They were wearing their masks and distancing, so then the rate goes down. And then they relax and it comes back. Nothing's changed. This virus hasn't changed at all. It's, it's our behavior changes, so it looks better, and then we relax, and then it gets worse. It's going to be a tough winter. Yes, but you as a nurse, I mean, we'll just talk about basic epidemiology, basic hygiene, all those yep. things. If everyone were simply to practice that, more strictly, yes. we would have that reduction of what they call the curve again. Absolutely. It's almost ridiculous how simple it is to just wear a mask. I'm not saying don't go to the park, don't see your friends, you know, but just wear a mask, distance, be careful. Um, that's a whole nother show. We could save so many lives just by doing the basics. Really, we really could. It's sad, actually. What can we say because of your story? I mean, you're the, one of the great examples in our, in our country today of someone who had been faced with an incredible challenge and through her mindset, through resiliency, through looking forward, being looking for momentum, getting back up. How can we use some of your skill sets, transfer those to people today who still, they feel lost. They feel like they have been knocked down and they don't know how to get back up. And if they were to get back up, they're afraid they might get knocked back down. What can we say to the, these, these people? Yeah. You know, I, we think that we have control over our lives. I always say that my life really went the way I thought it would go, but it always has gone the way it needed to go. So we have this idea that we plan our life and it goes the way it, we think it's going to go, but it doesn't. And I think this pandemic is forcing us to see that. So it's almost like you have to be in the moment because we don't know, is it going to be better or worse in three months or six months or a year? We don't know. So it's like a soul searching kind of time for everybody. And so I, what I would say is, you know, think of it almost like a day at a time and do those things. Like do the things that give you energy because you need energy to get through this, right? I mean, you, you do. And so the basics, take care of your health, sleep, you know, eat the right foods, do those things that just physically take care of you because you have a body and if your body goes, you have nothing, right? Do the things that give you energy that, that make you feel good. So I have to take a walk every day in nature. I have to. It might be music. It might be poetry. It might be a good book. I don't know. But something that gives you energy. Find your support. And just because they're family and friend doesn't mean they're support, right? Find those people who keep you positive and keep it going. And it could be a 
some guru that you follow or a book, but somebody or professional help. Some people need that right now. One thing I do every day is I do a gratitude list and I've been doing this most of my life. So I wake up in the morning and I, by the way, I only watch the news three or four days a week right now. I have on my calendar, I X out no news today. Like I won't let myself watch news or do social media or anything, no Facebook, nothing, because it can get, I can get sucked in really sure. fast. So I put an X, like today is none of that. But I do this gratitude thing that I write five, 10 things in the morning that I'm thankful for. And it could be, boy, I've got you know, a really good scone for breakfast, or my daughter is okay, or my knee feels better, or, you know, whatever, it could be big or small. And then you look at it, you read it, you say it out loud, and you think about it. And then at night, you read it again. And what it does is it forces your day to start positive and end positive. And when things are really bad, maybe you do more on your list, or maybe you pin it on your refrigerator, and you look at it during the day, because you have control over that. So, you know, have your energy, get support wherever you need it, have that gratitude. And then I think the other thing is, this is the time, this is a really unique time for us to find our bigger purpose. Everyone on the earth right now can find a bigger purpose than we had before this pandemic. So when you're upset about something or something makes you cry or something moves you, really think about what, what is that, you know? And I don't know if, if it means you're going to be a different parent or you're going to write a book or you're going to volunteer when this is over or now, but you need to get something good out of here. So those are just some ideas. Because I, I think what we're doing is we're watching the news. You know, we're watching sure. the news and the media and you get sucked in. You can just get sucked in for hours and hours. And then, and then you go out in the world and you think that's how everybody is and they're not. People are good. People yeah, overall are really you, good. You, you nailed it when you said, if you can start your day with 10 things to be grateful for, to build your own gratitude list. Yeah. You're training your mind to think in that way and then to be able to have the polarity at the end of the day to be able to go through it again like an audit, checks and balances. Yeah. Your money in the cash register, that's your positive energy. Yeah. Because you are the only person responsible for your positivity or not. My, I'm going to just, this real quick story. My daughter... We, we, got, we were, I was in New York on 9-11. And the irony is I was late. I was going to the World Trade Center that day. And I was late because I was breastfeeding my daughter and she ate slow. And so I was late and I was on my way when the towers got hit. So I tell people, well, a lot of women, like their boobs almost killed them, but mine almost, mine almost killed me, but they also saved me, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so 9-11 took a, a hit on my family and uh, my kids and I were in a situation at one point where we were bordering on being homeless. Um, I was being evicted. And my daughter, she was eight at the time, and I was having a breakdown. I was having a mental breakdown because I couldn't pay the rent. I had no money. That's why I can teach it, right? I couldn't pay my health insurance. It was just, I had a, a broken shoulder at the time, so I couldn't work. There was a lot going on. My daughter comes in and she sees me crying and she says, Mommy, I want you to do something. She says, close your eyes. I close my eyes. And she says, pretend you don't have anything. She's eight. I said, okay. She goes, okay, you don't have a house. You don't have the dog. You don't have the refrigerator. You don't have food. You don't have... And she's listing all these things. And she says, can you imagine it? And I go, yeah. And then she says, you're leaning on the, on the counter. She says, don't lean because you don't have a counter. <laughs> so I came forward and she goes okay, you have nothing, right? And then she says, do you see it? And I got my eyes closed. I go, yeah, I got nothing. And she goes, nothing. She goes, now open your eyes. 
And I open my eyes and she says, ta-da, you have me. Whoa. An eight-year-old sage. And from that day forward, it's like, okay, find that one thing you got. Get that gratitude going. Is that so cool? That is awesome. Diane, one more question I wanted to ask you about prior to you going into surgery, because you knew what you were up against. You knew all about the procedure that you were going to go through and other women had gone through. And this is a, this is a malady that, that takes lives uh, every day in this country, all around the world. Did you use any special techniques, visualization? Did you do, were you doing any, anything that maybe you would like to share? I, um, you know, I kind of, I mean, I had five years where every time I go to the doctor, I was wondering if they're going to tell me I had, you know, if it was worse because I had all these pre-cancers. So I had, it just became part of my life. I'm very much into eating healthy and just being healthy in general. You know, I, I watch what I eat. I watch what I do. I do meditate. I started doing some yoga. I've been working out my whole life in terms of, you know, weights and biking and stuff. So that helps me. I'm not shy. I have my friends tell them anything. So I'm not afraid to get some support and help. So yeah, definitely, you know, whatever, whatever is your normal coping skill and gets you through things. If you're told you have breast cancer or you might have it, or they're looking to see if you have it, you have to really ramp it up. What was hard for me was I wasn't a good candidate for like radiation and all that because my, the cells were really far back on my chest wall. So if they radiated me, I was going to have to be followed by a cardiologist and they were going to have to literally burn my heart or whatever. It could affect your organs. Right. Exactly. And because my mom had had cancer early, I just didn't want to go there. So I went from stage one to three, you know, I went like full out, get rid of it. We're done. But it was hard because my doctor said, your body doesn't know if you got attacked in Central Park and someone's cutting you up or you're in surgery, it's a trauma to your body. So it's hard, you know, physically it's hard because you're mutilated. And then the whole thing about, you know, what your breasts mean to a woman anyway, and thank God I wasn't in my twenties, right? I mean, at least I had that whole experience of babies and all that, but there wasn't a lot out there for women who had double mastectomies. There wasn't a lot in terms of what do you do after? Do you have surgery or don't you? Do you have reconstruction or don't you? It's all focused on, God, you got through it, you survived, and then it kind of ends. So another one of my passion projects is I want to do retreats for women who have scars for breast cancer and remind them that they're beautiful. So I'm doing, I'm getting info from various women to see what would that retreat look like? Because it's like, I think you get through it, you survived, and then you're just so happy you're alive, but you don't feel beautiful anymore. You don't feel sexy. You don't, you know, it takes a lot out of you. It really does. So you have to, I don't, I, I'm not really answering your question, but just everything you do that has helped you cope with tough times, you need to just notch it up. I don't care. And I don't care how crazy it sounds. If it makes you feel better and more, you know, safer and more at peace, just do it, whatever it is. And women should get checked every six months. Is that the general rule? At a, at a, well, at a certain, no. Um, mammograms are like every year, you know, when you get to a certain age. I was every six months because I, I, was, I was high risk because of all these precancer cells. And I still have to do every six months for five years because even though I had a double mastectomy, they still have to make sure they didn't miss any cells. So I actually have an exam next week, my six, like a six month follow up. I counted at least three books, possibly four during this interview today that you definitely have in you. I'm looking forward to seeing those. Thank you. I hope we can stay in touch so that we can interview you when you get something published or even, even before. Thank you. Diane Miller, Survivor. 
not only a survivor, but a crusader for, for good, for change, for positivity, for great health, for good finance, for better living. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining The Real Mission. We welcome you to explore the next Real Mission on Possible with Coach MJ. Meet ordinary people who have achieved the extraordinary. Like, share, and comment to inspire others today.